Join with me in a quick word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for this day that you've provided for us. We thank you that we could be in this place worshiping you, lifting your name up. And we just ask that you continue to join with us in this place and as we go from this place today. Thank you. In your name we pray. Amen. Good morning. I'm going to start with a quick story that has absolutely nothing to do with anything that I'm talking about, um, but is important to me nonetheless. This month has not been the greatest month in the history of my life. Um, When I first started at Tinder, I worked in admissions, and uh, my job was to go around recruiting and to sell the school a little bit and try and talk about what made this school so awesome. And so part of that was you know, I was having some really quippy um, sales pitch lines. And one of my favorites was, um, because I came uh, into the school for Leading Edge, I always used this one line, I came for a program, but I stayed for the community. And I meant it with all my heart. It wasn't just like a, a line that I was throwing out there to um, make the school sound better than it is. I truly, truly believe it. And this month, I really experienced that um, in a new and profound way. Uh, Without getting into too much details, my otherwise very healthy grandfather was taken ill and has been in the hospital for the past 30 days. And it's been extremely difficult, uh, not only for uh, my family, but especially on my grandmother. And we've been spending time with her, really just trying to be the positive influence. But it's hard to be the positive influence when you're also struggling with it yourself. And so this community that... Um, I've come to every day of the week for the past month has really rallied around and I especially want to thank those in student life who have constantly been there for me, asking me how he's doing, telling me that they're praying for me and really being a support vessel for me. And without them, it would be hard for me to be up here today sharing with you um, because it's been extremely hard. Um, But to my grandfather, who I know hopefully will listen to this one day on a podcast, that um, I wanted to know that I... I'm proud of him, how hard he's been fighting, and um, without him, I also wouldn't be up here today, and he's been an inspiration to me, and I I hope that I continue to learn lots of lessons from him. But today, I want to talk to you about being a good neighbor, um, living in an upside-down kingdom. I'm going to start by paraphrasing a story from one of my favorite authors. This story uh, comes from a book that I really enjoy, and if you want to know more about it, you can ask me afterwards, but... In a world where following Christ has been decreed to be illegal and subversive, you've been accused. You've been arrested. The prosecution has built up quite a case against you. You are afraid for your very life. In fact, the case is so strong that they feel that they can take you to trial. So you're on trial. You are now facing a judge. Your life hangs in the balance. The prosecution opens the trial. They pull out dozens of photographs of you at church meetings, speaking, praying, hands lifted high, all night prayer. They have it all. They've been um, having surveillance on you for the past who knows how long, years, much like the NSA. They really are good at what they do, and they have all the information. So they start with that. And you're like, man, that is bad. That is bad, but maybe I could just tell them, you know, I just go. I don't really believe in it. But nope, they... They come out, they've got all your worship CDs. They went to your house, they collected those. Hillsong, everything, it's all there. A lot of Hillsong. Um, Stacked up. It's all there. 
they put that on the judge's bench. You can barely see the judge's eyes over the stack of CDs. They take those off. You're like, man, what else could they do? They have your journals, your prayers, your poetry, the prayers that you wrote when you were crying out to God in hard times. And you're like, oh, man, it can't get any worse than this. Your head is hung low. You haven't said anything. You're just kind of sitting there taking it all in. But if it couldn't get any worse than that, the lawyer pulls out your Bible. It is marked up. He flips the pages past the judge's face, and there's not a page that doesn't have some sort of highlight or note taken on it. Little notes fall out of it from friends, things that you'd taken while you were in church. You hang your head low. You just think to yourself, could it get any worse? You face the possibility of long-term imprisonment or even execution. At various times throughout the proceedings, you have lost all confidence and even thought about denying Christ. You've thought about getting up and just turning your back on everything that you've believed. But while this thought has plagued you, you resist the temptation. You remain strong. Once the prosecution has wrapped up their case, the judge asks you if you have anything to say. And like Christ, before your accusers, you remain silent. You think, this is the best thing I can do in this case. So in your response, you are led outside to wait as the judge ponders your case. You sit in the hallway outside the courtroom and you just hang your head. People walk by, they give you funny stares, you don't make eye contact with them. After a short while, a young man appears. He leads you back into the courtroom. You walk proud with your head high, looking at those in the courtroom saying, yes, I know. The judge re-enters the room. He goes to his podium. He's a harsh and unyielding man. You're like, this isn't going to be good. He stares you deep into the, in your eyes, and he looks at you, and he says, of the charges that have been brought before this court, I find the accused not guilty. You think to yourself, not guilty. Your heart freezes. You're like, that's good. That's not good. Why am I not guilty? There was a lot of evidence. What is going on here? And so to finally, despite all of the best advice going on in your heart. You stand up and you say, not guilty? What do you mean? What about all this evidence that was brought before you? And the judge looks at you and says, what evidence? And you're like, well, the, the poems and the poetry that I wrote, that simply shows that you think yourself a poet, nothing more. Okay, okay. What about the services I spoke at? The times I wept in church, the nights of sleepless prayer. Evidence that you were a good speaker, an actor, nothing more. It's obvious that you've deluded yourself and perhaps those around you, but this foolishness is not enough to convict you in a court of law. But this is madness, you shout. It would seem that there is no evidence that can convict me. Not so, the judge replies, as though he's informing you of a secret lost a long time ago. The court is indifferent toward your Bible reading, he says, and your church attendance. It has no concern for worship with words and pen. Continue to develop your theology and use it to paint pictures of love. We have no interest in such armchair artists who spend their time creating images of a better world. We exist only for those who would lay down that brush and their life in a Christ-like endeavor to create a better world. So, until you live as Christ and his followers did, until you challenge this system and become a thorn in our side, until you die to yourself and offer your body to the flames... And tell them, my friend, you are no enemy of ours. 
The author of that story was influenced by a bumper sticker he saw with this on it. If Christianity were illegal, would there be enough evidence to convict you? The author of this story was moved by the bumper sticker, questioned what it meant, really, and thought about Christ and his life and everything that that means to someone who claims to be a Christ follower. He thought that Jesus himself was brought before the court with enough evidence to convict him. His words, his deeds, his actions all piled up against him. He went on to say that it shouldn't matter whether the religion of Christianity is illegal or not. The very mission we are called to is subversive and countercultural. It goes against what we consider to be the norm, the status quo. And it should cause a stir in this world, no matter the form of government we find ourselves under. So he went on to say that they should change the bumper sticker from Christianity if Christianity were illegal, to Christianity is illegal. Is there enough evidence to convict you? One of my passions and concerns for the North American church is what place do we find ourselves in in the world today? Um, Last year you may remember me saying that there used to be this notion in missions from the West to the rest. And it was a, a... a notion that pervaded missions for many years. And we thought here in the West, in North America and Western Europe, that we had all the answers and it was our duty, nay, our responsibility, to go out into the world and to um, spread the gospel to the heathen and to the pagan. But that's really not the case. And like most theories that humans come up with, God proved to us it wasn't the case. Now, in the rest of the world, namely South America, Africa, China, there are more Christians sending out more missionaries than we ever have. And so it's no longer this idea, and so I ask myself again, what place do we have? Our brother and sister churches have taken up this mantle far better than we have, and much like our people, the Christians in North America have become gluttonous and self-indulgent. We have all the money, we have all the resources, but it seems like the only stat we actually care about is how many bums are in pews on a Sunday morning. We have a further problem. We're losing our young people in droves. According to the Canadian study, Hemorrhaging Faith, one in three young people who attend church as children still do, still do so today. Only one in three. Of the young adults who no longer attend church, half have also stopped identifying with the Christian tradition in which they were raised. That's a a staggering statistic. The young people of this world, especially here in Canada, the United States, are looking for a sincerity of faith that we proclaim but don't seem to actually live out. We make big splashes about social, political issues that seem to offend us, that attack the freedom of religion in North America. But much like the story I told, we have all the outward signs of faith. We have our small groups, Bible studies, multi-million dollar churches and worship bands. But is that enough evidence? Is there more evidence that Christ is actually alive and well within our midst? What evidence is there that shows that God's people live in a way that God himself lived while he was here? Are we reaching out to the lepers, the unclean, the Samaritans who are the most despised among us? Are we touching them and their lives? Are we reaching out to the prostitutes, the widow, 
the orphan, prisoners. I'm not trying to elevate myself. In fact, I am calling myself out just as much um, as everybody else. I talk a big game. We all do. We all think about helping. And as we lay down in our warm beds with our nice duvet, sleeping, we know in our hearts that we want to help. That somehow that that's good enough. But as the author Bob Goff puts it, thinking about doing something is not the same as actually doing something. The time has come to stop talking. And it has to start at the top. It has to start with our leaders. We need, as the scripture says, to stop being hearers of the word and be doers of the word. And so to reflect on this passage that was read earlier, a dispute also rose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And Jesus said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as one who serves. For who is greater, one who reclines at the table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am hoping, or sorry, I am among you as one who serves. Jesus, in his classic style of riddles and questions and reverse talk, gets the disciples to stop talking about who's going to be the greatest and gets them to focus on who's going to serve more. We like leadership in North America. We love the CEO. We love the president. We love the idea of rising to the top, the American dream of starting at the bottom and working our way up to the pinnacle. We have conferences, classes, programs, mentors to develop young leaders. They are groomed for the stage and given all authority. But the young leaders, myself included, lie to ourselves. We say, it's not my job to go out. It's my job to equip you to go. But the problem is if we have too many young leaders, we become over-equipped and nobody's actually going. We have all the equipment, but nowhere to go. We're stockpiling. We aren't called to be leaders. We're called to be servants. The problem is we can't all be equipping each other all the time. Jesus was very clear that those who are lead are called to serve. The greatest are the least. The kingdom of God is upside down. The pyramid is upside down. So we look to the very example that Christ set before us. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this in mind among yourselves, which, of you, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the very form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So maybe we actually aren't taking Christ seriously enough and learning to humble ourselves to the form of a servant. And maybe the reason the people are fleeing the church is because they see people doing more good for their fellow man outside of it. My pastor told this story um, a couple Sundays ago at church. He was in seminary a number of years ago and was taking an evangelism course. And in this evangelism course, they were required to go out into the local community and try and just talk about faith with people that they interacted with. And so he told this story of um, going out and they met a Mormon. Um, this guy had grown up in the area. He'd even attended church as a small child. Um, but he, there was nothing drawing him to it as an adult. He didn't have a lot of money, and he was out in his driveway 
uh, trying to fix his car when he needed, uh, that he needed to to get to work. He didn't have a lot of money in order to fix it, so he was just trying to do it manually, banging on it with a wrench or whatever. Um, and then as he's sitting there under the car, two Mormons come up to him. And he's thinking, oh, great, this is just what I need right now. Two guys who are you know, just going to try and preach at me while I'm trying to fix my car to get to work to make enough money to support my family. But instead of preaching at him, one of the Mormons takes off his jacket, puts it on the ground, lies down on it, looks under the car, says, oh, I can see what the issue is right there. You know, it's probably going to cost you about 800 bucks to repair. They leave. They go back to their assembly. They talk to them there. They say, okay, this guy doesn't have $800. Do you think we could spare that? And so the Mormon assembly gets the $800, brings it back to this man, no strings attached, and this guy fixes his car. So are you not surprised to find out that this man eventually converted to Mormonism because he was so drawn by their love and compassion that he began to attend their assembly and then eventually converted to their faith? It's hard to love people. I'm not going to deny that. It's hard to reach out to people. It's easier to become a leader that sends other people out instead of actually rolling up your sleeves and going yourself. It's hard to get out into the community around you and make small but significant differences. It's easy to sit at home and pray for somebody. It's harder to conclude that prayer with a warm meal that you take to them. Maybe the calling is not for more leaders in the church, but more servants. If we remember that the kingdom of God is upside down, where the greatest become the least... It goes against the grain of everything we know to be true about society. It goes against culture. The upside-down work of the kingdom calls those on high to humble themselves, to wash the feet of those the world considers the lowest. This is a picture of Pope Francis washing prisoners' feet in prison last Easter. This is one of his first acts as pope. People have taken notice of this guy because of the words he said, but this was the thing that put him on the radar. This was the thing that made people say, maybe this guy's actually a little different. Um, and why people are actually paying attention to him now, because his deeds reflect his words. And is it no wonder that this man is also named after, or chose his name after St. Francis of Assisi, who had the famous quote attributed to him, preach the gospel at all times, use words when necessary. Maybe if we start treating our churches the same way. Imagine with me for a second. Imagine if church stopped worrying about the amount of people coming into the building, but worried more about the amount of people going out of the building. Imagine that if on a Sunday the pastor said, I'm not going to preach today. Let's go out on the street and pick up some garbage. Or, what if we counted instead the number of people in the pews and counted how many people were that morning at a nursing home singing and worshiping. What if our youth group stopped paintballing and started painting single moms' homes who were barely just scraping by? Do you think those small things would go unnoticed? So the question I ask is what will you do this semester, year, month, to prove that it's not just something you believe but it's something you show that you believe. From the same study, Hemorrhaging Faith, that I mentioned earlier, it says 71% of those who are still engaged in their faith said their faith came alive on a short-term missions trip. 
a, Staler, uh, sorry, a study out of Taylor University, which I was privy to when I went there for a conference a couple of years ago, had eight areas of um, personal and academic growth. And they said st students who studied or took um, terms abroad for three or more weeks showed growth in all eight areas, but especially in academics, personal relationships, integrity, and spiritual life. When you actually get out of the pew and do something, your faith becomes alive. Words become flesh. Our words become deed and our faith becomes active. Let me finish with this. The story of the Good Samaritan is one of my favorite passages in Scripture. Um, I just love how Jesus shares the story of uh, a man who is considered the most despised helping a Jewish man and caring for him. And I'm sure you're all very familiar with the story of the priest and the rabbi passing by. And he's just left there bleeding and the Samaritan helps him. And it's not that story that really causes me a lot of great reflection. It's his finish. Which of these three of those men, the priest, the rabbi, and the Samaritan, do you think proved to be a better neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He's asking, there's two leaders there and just a guy. Who was better? The two leaders of the faith, the ones who proclaim the message, or the one who actually did something? And they said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said, go and do likewise. Jesus didn't say, sit here and learn and let me equip you. He didn't ask him to attend 12 courses in order to become a member, in order to serve. He didn't say, go to this conference and learn how to be a better neighbor. He said simply, go, get out of here, be kind, show mercy, and be a good neighbor. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for this day. We thank you again that we could just sit here and dwell on your example, uh, how you, God, came down to this earth and set an example for us. And we just strive every day to learn how to live that example a little better in our own lives. I pray as these students go from here that they find the opportunities, whether it's something that we offer here at Tyndale, or it's something at their church, or it's something even within their local community, that they find ways in order to demonstrate their faith and to ultimately serve you, to grow in you, and to be a good neighbor to those around them. Amen.